Hi everybody, this is Malcolm Keating, and you're listening to Sutras and Stuff. In the first part of my interview with Patricia Southoff, we talked about Ayurveda and how pre-modern Indian thinkers understood disease. One of the facts she mentioned is that Buddhist medicine was influential early on. In this second half of our conversation, we return to that topic, as well as to the question of what makes a good doctor, what makes someone a quack, and also what modern Ayurveda has in common with pre-modern Ayurveda. My name is Patricia Southoff. I am a postdoc at the University of Alberta as part of the European Research Council funded Ayur-Yog project in which we are examining the entangled histories of yoga, Ayurveda, and alchemy. So what were some of the healing practices that were found in these texts? For instance, you mentioned that uh, Buddhist practitioners in in monasteries and nunneries were engaging in healing practices. Um, What are some of the techniques that, that they were using? They were using pretty rudimentary early medicines, like, you know, uh, some plants probably, but the the actual, what the actual Buddhist monks were supposed to carry was just, you know, ghee and honey, um, oils, things that will act as purgatives a lot of times. So, you know, you purge the disease from your body um, by drinking like hot oil. You purge everything from your body, um, including the disease and then including the foods. And so a lot of the treatment is also like once you purge all these things from your body, then you have to have this bland diet to build your strength back up slowly. So one of the things in in Buddhism is this, uh, I guess, metaphor, you could say, of of the the Buddha in some ways as a doctor. Right. And so there's there's different sort of, um, I think, I think of metaphorical relations between uh, how people think of disease, how people think of uh, sort of uh, spiritual practices. There's there's interconnections here. And one of the things I've been thinking about in um, the contemporary context is a very common metaphor that gets used in the context of disease is this idea of a disease as an invasion and engaging in a disease as a as a kind of a battle right this is this is common at least in the the news sources that i've been reading with the coronavirus a lot of people talk about it in this way um were these same kinds of metaphors of uh, sort of fighting battles against an unseen enemy were these present in the text that you're reading or were there were were there other metaphors um, basically, how how were people thinking of themselves and speaking of themselves in relationship to to disease and health? Yeah, well, um, Buddhism very early kind of gives they Buddha does teach that there's these humors and that when they're imbalanced, you get problems. He also does acknowledge that you know seasonal disruptions, karma, all of these things can cause disease. So it's not just that the humors are imbalanced, right? Sometimes it's because you've done a bad thing in your previous life and you're karma is making you sick. Um, so there's a there's a lot. There's not really metaphors of battle so much, although it, when the in pediatrics you get these very interesting sections where the diseases in children are usually caused by yoginis who need to be fed. Um, and so, you know, you have to do rites and rituals for the, the, the yoginis, which is very much closer to what you would find in like tantric medicine, uh, but it comes up in in Ayurveda and alchemy all the time that children are especially susceptible to these these flying, flesh-eating, hungry goddesses and 
So it's not about getting the medicines. It's about appeasing the deity so that they'll leave your children alone. Hmm. So there was, at least in some contexts, a, a kind of an an oppositional external idea about disease. But then there was also a sort of uh, idea that disease was about an internal imbalance that had to be had to be righted. Uh, and did they 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 brought these sort of two together in any way? Or are they just kind of different different ways of thinking that were never really explicitly sort of reconciled? Yeah, they kind of show up in texts right next to each other. So you'll get a whole text that has recipes for you know X, Y, and Z. Put this plant into the milk and cook it for two hours and then you turn the page and then it's like now we're going to talk about the yoginis that afflict children okay so it's this yeah there's not really a an, an issue it's just sort of like yeah these are these are all the things that can go wrong and, and this is how you deal with them uh these thinkers were engaging in trade they were engaging in conversation with people outside of their um, particular specific locale and they they thought of that what they were doing is is learning right no they're 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 very scientific about it they're they're adding so that they could cure new diseases they have to innovate when new diseases come up and and just like now where where you know people are testing oh is this malarial medicine going to work for coronavirus they're saying okay well fever is a part of this you know this is what we do for fever how does it work so they're yeah so they're utilizing that old knowledge and building on it you know yeah they're they're scientists they're not priests they're 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 scientists who want to maintain a healthy community and so one of the one of the things when we think about ayurveda today it seems like is the idea that what what Ayurveda is is just this ancient knowledge that is sort of perfect is in some ways contrary to the spirit of Ayurveda itself, which is uh, like you're saying scientific and trying to kinds of you know test test knowledge and and make sure that you're actually healing someone uh, and not being a, a charlatan or or a quack. Yeah, they talk a lot about charlatans and quacks and how you need to stay away from them because there's a lot of them out there. And if you get involved with them, you won't get healthy. You'll get worse. So they're very aware of, of charlatans and quacks. <laughs> yeah, those are some of my, my favorite passages in the Charka Samhita. I've had, I, I gave that to my, some of my students when we were learning about uh, debate practices in, in Indian philosophy because of the, the discussion of expertise. And this comes up in the context of debating with experts. And well, there are some people that seem like they're experts. But in fact, they're they're quite dangerous people, and they were it seems like they were very aware of that even even then. Yeah, and there's a lot of you know to be a physician, you have to you know be a pure person, you have to be vegetarian, you have to conform to all of these sort of modes of not harming. And then with alchemy, it's it gets more so. You get these female assistants to the alchemists, and they have to, you know, have you know, be good people. But then they also have to have perfect bodies, and so you have, yeah, you have very strict restrictions on who can perform these things. It's these texts are they're they're recipe texts, but they're definitely aimed at experts. It's and they will say you have to do this under the guidance of a doctor. You know, this is not a self treatment kind of thing at all, which is, again, I think quite different. Today, you can go to just your local pharmacy and get some Ayurvedic herbs and, and take them. But they would absolutely say this has to be done under the discretion of a physician. 
Yeah, so it sounds like there's there's a lot of different uh, things going on in this text. One is in these texts you have just the level of the the practical testing thing things which which work or don't work. You have questions of epistemology, how we know that we're we have a good teacher that we're we're learning things like that, and also sort of some moral questions. Uh, you mentioned the the moral status of the of the teacher and of the student but also in the context of an of an epidemic uh the state has some some responsibilities uh, so the state should be doing certain things um, even if we wouldn't consider it a modern state like we have today people who are who are ruling let's put it that way so i guess one one maybe last question is uh for the context of these pre-modern indian practitioners are they considering problems that we think of as uh the kind of ethical problems that arise in the context of medicine, like assisted suicide, shortages of medical su supplies, moral responsibility for who gets and who spreads the disease, things like that. Yeah, there's a lot about what should be in the hospitals. Um, they talk a lot about how hospitals, you know, they need to be they need to be well stocked before there's an issue because even if you have tons of money, getting the medicines in the middle of an, an emergency is going to be difficult. So there's a lot of emphasis on having a very well-stocked, uh, yeah, a well-stocked hospital. And there are also mentions of who can and cannot get treatment, right? So, um, you know, if someone is so people who fancy themselves as doctors are not supposed to get treatment, violent people. Um, so some of these are moral. Um, you also get, you know, someone who shows signs they're about to die. So if someone's on their deathbed, you have to stop treating them. Um, they do also say that um, people who are no, uh, people who are poor and people who have no servants should not be treated. And it's because they won't be able to afford the medicines. And we do see in Chinese accounts that there are wealthy patrons who are helping the poor. So, you know, the, the ye olde GoFundMe seems to have been around for a very long time where wealthy people are paying for the treatment for people who can't afford it. And really, that's the thing. It's not like being poor is immoral or it's not a judgment on poverty. It's 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 practical. It sounds cold, but it's practical. If they can't afford the medicines, then you shouldn't treat them. Um, Unfortunately, there does seem to have been a system of patronage where people who are generous will say, well, okay, well, I'll pay for the treatment for that person. Given the work that you do and given the, the times that we're living in, which is uh, in many ways like, like times before, a uh, time of uh, disease which is spreading across the world, what, what are some of the connections that you see uh, in these older texts and the kinds of things that people are experiencing or are grappling with today? Yeah, I think the focus on prevention is really important in Ayurveda. And I think that's what a lot of, I mean, the people that I'm talking to are focusing on prevention and health, not just, you know, not getting coronavirus, but like, what do I do while I'm cooped up at my house to stay healthy? So People who don't normally integrate yoga are reaching out to me and saying, hey, is there an online yoga or meditation class I can do because I don't know what to do. I can't go for a run. Um, so I think a, a lot of people are turning to not necessarily Ayurveda, but more, you know, yoga and meditation to just try to get through this time. They know it exists. And it's like, well, I might as well give it a shot now. 
good as good a time as any. And I think because everyone is in this all together, it's really weirdly keeping the anxiety level kind of like people who have high anxiety are like, yes, welcome. This is where I'm always at. And I, I think that's actually quite helpful for people because people who are normally seen as sort of like more, more focused on their health or, or more full of anxiety or maybe hypochondriacs are, are able to help people who are, are normally experiencing those things right now to say, okay, here's how we, we deal with this. And a lot of them do deal with it through things like yoga and meditation. So it's a, it's an interesting time to sort of see the relevancy of these 2000 year old texts that I'm reading or 2,500 even. Well, so if people who are, are listening want to learn more about these topics, what would be some kind of accessible introductory resources that you would recommend? And do you have any warnings about uh, material online? You know, if you just Google Ayurveda, what should we be looking out for? Um, quacks, you know? Um, yeah, if you just Google Ayurveda, you're going to get a lot of a lot of different stuff and a lot of different ideas. And I think it's a bit overwhelming. You tend to get, or at least, you know, Google searches are always different for different people. So I tend to get a lot of like scientific papers from India, just in my Googling of Ayurveda that aren't terribly useful to me. Um, you can find a lot of these old texts online, but you know, they're, they're old translations. So they're kind of hard to read, but just for like a basic and, accessible um, price-wise and reading-wise. Um, if people are interested, I would recommend um, Dominic Vajastic's Roots of Ayurveda. He pulls out a ton of different sections, translates them in a very accessible way, and it mostly does come from these compendiums, but it's got a little bit of everything. So that's a really fun, it's a really fun start and yeah, just really well organized and well put together. So yeah, that would be my just sort of go-to for, certainly for anybody. That's a great place to start. Well, that's it for this episode of Sutras and Stuff. Thanks for listening. In two weeks, at the usual time, I'll have a new episode for you. Some of the episodes that I'm working on include interviews with philosophers, as well as extended reflections on a single topic like reasoning or perception. And I do hope to produce five more episodes in this first season of Sutras and Stuff before taking a little bit of a break. As always, you can email me at sutrasandstuff at gmail.com. You can leave me a voice message on Anchor, or you can find me on Twitter at C. Malcolm Keating. I'll talk to you all in two weeks.